and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Jacob Austin. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a conversation with Matthew Shapiro from NAMI talking about mental health resources and NYC's plan to address homelessness. Then, Bria Barcel brings us up to date on youth, active, on, youth, on youth activities at the Troy Library. Later on, we follow the winter pro roost with Craig Gibson. After that, Anna Allen gives us an update on her family in Ukraine. Finally, we spotlight sanctuary intern Jacob Boston. Yours truly. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that the Central Hudson Gas and Electric was aware of critical issues with its new billing system when it launched it in September 2021, but forged ahead anyway. The investigation by the State Public Service Commission found multiple problems, accusing the company of negligence and violations of public service law. It also proposes civil penalties. The town board in, in, Rotterdam, on, on, in Rotterdam on Wednesday unanimously approved a year-long moratorium on large-scale solar airways. Meanwhile, the United Nations continues to warn that the slow action by government by governments to transition to clean energy means that the world is rapidly running out of time to avoid climate catastrophe. A former deputy press secretary to Attorney General Tish James, who accused Ibrahim Khan, the AG's former chief of state, of unwanted kissing filed a lawsuit Tuesday alleging that James and her office ignored previous warnings about his behavior. The plaintiff was not working for the AG at the time, and the incident occurred, and it did not report it until a year, uh, a year later in October 2022. The complaint prompted the AG to hire an independent law firm to investigate, which led to the resignation of the chief of staff, who claims he was already planning to leave. New York on Thursday became the latest state to ban the sale of cats, dogs, and rabbits and pet stores in an attempt to target commercial breeding, commercial breeding operations de decreed by critics as puppy mills. The new law, which takes effect in 2024, lets pet shops work instead with shelters to offer to offer to offer rescued or abandoned animals up for adoption. It will also ban breeders from selling more than nine animals a year. That's it for the headlines. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk magazine. Listener supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, to media, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. So first up, 988 is the hotline for mental health concerns and suicide, and it's been a big success for the mental health 
justice community. Matthew Shapiro of NAMI, NAMI, talked to correspondent Sina Basilahickey about why 988 works and how New York City Mayor Adams' plan to address homelessness is problematic. Joining me now is Matthew Shapiro, Senior Director of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, New York State. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure always to have you. And this is the last episode before we take the end of year break for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. It's the perfect time to look back on 2022. For NAMI, what have been some of the significant moments, whether it be highlights or some struggles that have defined this year? Sure. Well, you know, people are still really struggling, of course, with their mental health as as we come out of the pandemic and, and a lot of the other tragic events that happened in the last couple of years. You know, people's mental health as, as a whole is still compromised. So we really have to be very in tune to that. But we have seen um, really a lot of progress this year, a lot that we're excited about. There are a lot of positive investments in, in mental health trying to expand uh access to mental health services. And and the thing that we're really most excited about is the implementation of the 988 mental health crisis line, which is really, in our opinion, the biggest game changer and and really when it comes to access to mental health services, because this gives everyone an easily accessible uh, lifeline. And again, you know, people think it's a, it's a suicide lifeline. It, it's not anyone who's having any sort of mental health crisis is just struggling, is worried about a friend or a loved one who's struggling, you can call 988 and you'll get connected to somebody right in your community with local services and, and local resources available. And it's much different than calling 911. It's not a police response. It's not a uh, any sort of criminal justice type of response. The thing that we're really excited about is that it provides a mental health response to a mental health crisis. So that's really one of the things that we're most excited about. It's really, uh, it's been up and running since July. It's had a lot of success here in New York State. Um, New York has really done an incredible job of implementing the program. So we do want to make sure that people know that it's out there. Again, all you have to do is three easy digits to remember, 988. And it's an immediate bridge to, as we call it, it's more than a number. It's a bridge to help, hope, and healing. There have been many cases of police being called to a scene of somebody who is having a mental health crisis and in many cases resulting in someone's life being taken. Have the numbers reflected how important this extra hotline is? Yes. So I'm so glad you asked that. So again, the main difference when you call 988 as opposed to 911, you know, when you call 911, you get a, a operator or a dispatcher whose job is to dispatch someone to respond. And as, as you said, most of the time, uh, there has been law enforcement and police, and that has led to tragic results. We know the sad story upstate uh, in Daniel Prude uh, and, and Rochester losing his wife uh, at the hands of police when he was having a mental health episode. There's a lot of tragic examples in New York City uh, of cops uh, leading to the death of someone with a mental illness. So the, the, the benefit of calling 988 is that you don't get a dispatcher. You get a, a therapist, somebody who's trained, either a 
uh, a therapist, a nurse practitioner, or a trained peer whose job is to diffuse the situation over uh, over the phone so you don't have to respond in person. And if a response is needed, then we try to make sure it's a mental health team and not a police response. So far, we just had the statistics that less than 2% of 988 calls have resulted in police involvement. So that's something we're very excited about. Could you relate the effectiveness of the 988 hotline to what's happening in New York City with Mayor Adams' plan to address homelessness? Sure. So we, we have a lot of concerns with Mayor Adams' plan to, as you said, address homelessness. What what he's really doing is he's taking a program that's called assisted outpatient treatment, which is designed you know, to keep people out of the hospital. It's for people who have had serious mental illness, have been hospitalized several times uh, in, in an 18-month period. And once they're out of the hospital, they can have a court-appointed treatment uh, placed on them, which is designed to keep them out of the hospital. Again, assisted outpatient treatment is what the program is called. So that does have that element of involuntary treatment to it because the court you know, mandates that you need to have it. What, what the mayor is doing is taking that kind of notion of, of involuntary treatment and really taking it to a, an extreme. Um, and there's a lot of concerns about that. And again, this is a program that's designed to keep people out of the hospital, and he's using it, as he said, to round up homeless people and hospitalize them and hospitalize them indefinitely. You know, normally, if someone, um, you know, if I was to bring a loved one to the hospital against their will, there's a 72-hour hold that they can hold them for for evaluation. This would throw that out the window, and in someone, you know, a homeless person who's picked up off the street of New York City and brought into a hospital, you know, they can be held there indefinitely. So that that's one of the problems. And of course, we know there are many routes to homelessness, not just mental illness. So to assume that everyone who's homeless has a mental illness, well, that's not 100% true. So that, that's a problem there too. The two biggest problems though, and, and you kind of hit the nail right on the head in, in asking the question is that we're using police as the conduits to recovery. And that's, you know, very problematic, especially in New York City. You know, we have, uh, we work with police all throughout the state with a program called Crisis Intervention Team Training, which is, um, you know, done uh, for police uh, and first responders. It's a 40-hour training. It's very uh, regimented, which really teaches them how to communicate to someone who's living with a mental illness and in a crisis situation and how to, de- how to uh, you know, de-escalate these situations in a peaceful manner. You know, police who have been through that program have had very successful interactions with people in a mental health crisis. The problem is the police officers in New York City haven't received that training. There is a, they do a training in New York City that's not CIT training, it's not 40 hours, and most of the police haven't even had access to that training. So it's very problematic and, and really concerning that you're going to have police being the first ones to kind of interact with homeless people to try to get them to, to embrace mental health recovery. doesn't really make much sense. There are um, mental health teams that they've uh, expanded in New York City. Uh, they're called the SOS teams. They're... Uh, have a mental health component to it. They have a, a social worker, a peer specialist. Those, I mean, if you're going to really try to, uh, you know, 
engage someone in treatment, it really, you want someone who, who knows what they're talking about is coming from a mental health space. The other problem is it's just not the capacity. You know, if you're going to hospitalize all of the homeless people, there are not enough hospital beds. And that's not what hospital beds are designed for. You know, uh, hospital beds are, are part of a continuum of care. But we know recovery is always going to happen best when it's done in the community, in a community setting. You know, hospitals are for most serious cases for, to get people back, to, you know, regulated and then get them to recover in the community, you know, hospital aren't hospital beds aren't long-term answers, especially for homelessness. And if really we want to engage people in recovery, we have to meet them where they're at. I mean, programs like here here in Rensselaer County and Troy, like uh, Joseph's House, are doing uh, you know fantastic work with homeless people, meeting them where they're at. You know, doing them within the shelters, having social workers, having therapists meet them there, not pulling them off the street and putting them into the hospital and thinking that will generate their recovery. So we are have a lot of concerns with that. So thank you for bringing it up and very concerned about possibly bringing that statewide as well. There's so much more to this plan that I hope that we can bring you back in the new year to go a little bit deeper into it. But Certainly. we are running out of time. And so looking forward, what are some upcoming legislative plans? Certainly. So we really want to open up access to care as a whole, make it easier for people to access hospital beds when they're needed, community services when they're needed, and, and therapies such as your medications for people who that's right for their recovery. So we have a whole package of bills and, and budget uh, asks that will help expand access to those three key elements that are so necessary to drive recovery. So again, you increase access to recovery programs like AOT aren't needed. So very uh, much looking forward to discussing those with you in more detail in the new year. Well, thank you so much, Matthew Shapiro, Senior Director at NAMI. Any last words to leave our listeners with? No, just again, this time of year, obviously, can be very stressful. Just hoping everyone maintains their mental health. Be mindful. And again, if you are struggling for any reason, NAMI is out there available for free. And you can use 988, which is a great resource as well. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. NAMI will join us again in January. For more information on mental illness and mental health, again, the hotline is 988. And next up, to hear all about the great activities for youth of all ages offered by the Troy Public Library, Carol Roberts, head of Young People's Services at the main branch, looks back at 2022 and looks forward to 2023. Well, I'm down at Troy Public Library with Carol Roberts, Young People's Services Librarian. And there's a lot of cool activities coming up at Troy Public Library. Carol, tell us about what's happening. Hi there, Bria. Um, we have a few of our regular programs that have been updated, things like Brick Builders and Silly Science Night and uh, tween and teen craft nights. But we also have some new programs I wanted to tell you about. Um, two of them are A Taste of France and a French club. We're starting a French club here at the library for middle and high school students. It'll be Thursdays uh, in the evening from 6 to 7 p.m. And this is just a drop-in program for fun French practice. And it's led by um, Ms. Ines of France in our young people's room. 
A Taste of France is a one-time event, and that will be Thursday, January 5th from 6 to 7 p.m. And you can, kids can sample a French pastry and put together a French holiday craft. This is for ages 8 to 16. And for this program, we do need um, kids to register so they can either call the, li the main library or they can sign up online. Oh, très bon. And next? I want to talk about our take and make kits. So right now we have a teen craft kit. And inside you will find an old book, some activity pages, a winter crossword puzzle, some coloring pages, and instructions on how to make a book hedgehog. I say what now? A book hedgehog. So it's a craft you can do using an old book, and we provide everything that you could need. And um, at the end, when you finish, it should actually look like a hedgehog, complete with googly eyes, nose, and ears. So this is through the page folding approach, and you get, uh, uh, is that what the book is for? Is this yes. the book that they use for folding? Yes, yes, each kit, um, each of the teen kits comes with a book and instructions and materials needed. And I believe there's another craft in there for making um, a string of stars, which is fun as well. I don't have a sample of those. And then I have for the youngers, I have a winter warmer take and make kit. And inside, there's a couple crafts along with coloring sheets and instructions and activity sheets. But kids can make their own fleece scarf. And so, for example, here's this beautiful aqua-colored scarf with polar bears and penguins. And kids can add fringe to the edges. And they can also tie them in knots if they want. And they can also adjust the length of the scarf if it's a little too long. And so um, it's a wearable craft. Did you cut up the fleece, or did, do you have volunteers who do that? Or We do that, yes. Um, it takes a village, so uh, there's several of us putting these kits together. And again, the, the kits are free. Everything you need is in them. And is it just for Troy residents or for anyone? For anyone who comes into the library, um, any, any kid, any teen. And you don't need a reservation to pick it up. The kits, the, the kits are available for pickup. Yes, as long as supplies last. And uh, we have a lot right now, so um, they're available and should be for a while. Terrific. So you can make a book hedgehog. You can make a scarf. You have all sorts of games and paper activities. Terrific. What else is going on? Um, well, we also have our regular uh, reading program on Saturdays. We have Greta, the reading dog, and kids can come and read to her to practice uh, their skills and gain confidence. And uh, she's a gentle labradoodle, and she loves to be read to. We also have our story time, learn and play on Thursdays uh, from 10:30 to 11:15. So we do stories, songs, movement, and play. As you know, play is a really big part um, of 
children's learning. And so we provide an opportunity, including toys, um, for them to do that. Now, with the start of a new year, it's a time for looking back and looking forward. What would you say are some of the things that most interested people during the year? Activities or books? Well, I know um, our Halloween party <laughs> was a huge success. Um, the things that interest people, I think people love um, meeting animals. Um, and so in the summer, of course, we, t we tried to have a bunch of activities um, you know, with visiting animals, such as we had uh, snakes um, from a, from a um, I guess you would call him a snake rescuer. I'm not sure, or what is the, I'm not sure what the term is. Snake wrangler is all that comes to mind. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we, we've had uh, reptiles, um, and we'll be doing more of that. We also had birds of prey. So we had owls and raptors, and uh, the people that, um, rescue these animals. Um, they come and, and show the animals and, and teach kids about um, what's all around them. Actually, you know, these are animals that are in their uh, in their backyard or, or in their neighborhood. Even um, the animals you don't see, especially at night. Snakes, reptiles, and raptors. Libraries have changed since I was a kid. Yes, well, we're still evolving, um, but ultimately we are a place for um, education and for people to um, find entertainment and knowledge. And um, whatever their interest might be, we can help point the way to that. And you talked about evolving. What's, what's on the horizon for 2023? Oh, we're going to have more in-person events and uh, more animals. Um, especially in the summer. In uh, February, we're going to have the Puppet People, and they'll be doing an event um, at Maine. I believe it's going to be the Firebird, and that will be during the school break week. And then there will also be um, a puppet show at the Lansingburg branch, although I don't know what that's going to be yet. Sounds great. Anything else you want to mention? Oh, we have a book fairy. <laughs> And kids, and you have snow falling off the roof. That was quite an interesting background noise. Yes, um, it is December, so. <laughs> and and you said a book fairy. Yes, we have um, a book fairy at the library. Kids can ask questions, and uh, she will answer any question about life or books or whatever a child most wants to know, and they can leave a, a question for her. And we have a little fairy tree, and they can leave a question in there, and then um, there will be a response within 24 hours. And when they come, when kids come back to get their answer, um, they also get a prize. In addition to just the fun of having a, a note from the book fairy, and they don't have to even pull out a tooth to take part in this. No, it's totally painless. That's great. And for more information, how can people find out details? Well, um, they can visit our website at thetroylibrary.org, and they can also look on our Facebook page. And they can also um, subscribe to the library's newsletter. Is that a print newsletter that's mailed out, or is that an email? It's an email newsletter. So um, you can do that on our website. Sounds great. And that's Carol Roberts, head of Young People's Services 
at the Troy Public Library main branch. Carol, it's delightful working with you as always, and I look forward to continued uh, segments in 2023. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, wishing all of our listeners good books and good holidays. Bye-bye. For details, see www.thetroylibrary.org. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Andrea Cunliffe. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Craig Gibson spoke with Hudson Mohawk Magazine producer Elizabeth Press about his group, The Crow, the Crow Patrol, Community science projects with crows. The impact of crow roosts, the impact of crow roosts on cities, and what can be done or not done about them. Next, we're talking crows with amateur crow expert Craig Gibson. Craig is the author of the site Winter Crow Roost, and from the city of Lawrence, Massachusetts, where, like Troy, New York, there is also a significant winter crow roost. Craig. Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. How did you first get into following and studying the crow? And in that, maybe you can just tell us what you find exciting about this creature. The crows are endlessly fascinating. I have been an active bird photographer uh, for many, many years. And when I started working in the city of Lawrence as a full-time Roman Catholic hospital chaplain, I began to track a pair of, of local nesting peregrine falcons located in a clock tower that it was actively monitored by mass wildlife. Almost six years ago, a local older couple had invited me to perhaps get involved with them observing, tracking, and documenting the this winter crow roost phenomenon in the city of Lawrence. The hospital that I work at, EP, is next door right now to the roost location this winter. But at most in the different roost locations, I've never been more than a mile away. So it was a it was a great joy to be able to to dive in, to understand this phenomenon. And I was able to do it on the way home every night, which made it very easy to, to do so. When asked about the crows and what makes them a fascinating bird, visually, for most people, they would be at the opposite end of the interesting uh, spectrum. Um, but the crows are, they are known to be very smart. They are known to be very social. And they are known to be very family-centered. So uh, it's fascinating to me to see references to Alfred Hitchcock's movie, The Birds. And so you could look at it, the crows in a Hitchcockian way and gloom and doom and whatever. 
But what I think is so interesting is they are so smart, they are so social, and this winter roost phenomenon speaks to that that social element, and they're very uh, family-centered, and this is off-season with their families before they go back to breeding grounds. Great. Thank you for that, Craig Gibson. And you do something that is called the Crow Patrol. What mm. is the Crow Patrol? And could you talk about the community or citizen science aspect of that project as you describe it? Sure. So two things. So as we got rolling and our visits became a lot more regular, uh, we began to invite uh, groups of people out, 10, 20, 30 at a time. And it just seemed appropriate to, to put some kind of a moniker or name of our of our group um, we continue to have people come out one, two, three at a time. We do groups and then also all kinds of environmental and conservation groups have extended invitations to come and speak and explain this very unique uh, and special avian phenomenon. It's been a real joy to be able to, to uh, share all of that. From a citizen science point of view, really fascinating. So for our wildlife, professional wildlife biologist friends, they simply don't have the time or the priority to get out and spend field time observing this phenomenon, both at dusk until dark and then dark until dawn. In the birding world, there is an online global citizen science portal for documenting sightings, uh, what you saw, when you saw it, how many you saw, conditions and all of that, it's called eBird. And so eBird is is the number one citizen science interface on, on all of this. Um, secondly, from a citizen science point of view, every winter there's a Christmas bird count here in our local area. It's for 24 hours starting midnight tonight. And in 15 mile radius circles for this Christmas bird count, um, groups of people go out and document all the birds that they see within that circle. And that data goes back decades and decades. So we have a separate dedicated team that will go out as part of the Christmas bird count sponsored by National Audubon, and we'll do a count of the crows tonight. Now, over the last two months, I've been documenting and counting and leading up. So I've got a very good idea. Uh, we'll probably end up tonight with, you know, thir over 13,000 uh, crows in the roost. The crows are both fish crows and American crows, probably 90% plus American crows, 10% fish crows. And then finally, on that citizen science side of your question, we've also been able, we've been able to engage high school students to get out and, and do structured observations and write-ups. We have third graders. I was invited into a third grade vacation week program last February. The kids had done uh, uh, an amazing amount of preparation and, and they had done it from a scientific and quantitative kind of perspective. They went back to the city council and that group agreed to declare the first Monday of school vacation week as an unofficial crow holiday in the, in the city. Um, we also do a lot of work with the leading crow wildlife biologists, avian biologists around the country who specialize in American crows and or fish crows and um, regularly in contact with them, exchanging information that, that benefits and, and raises their awareness. And, and I gain a great deal from those uh, interactions as well. Great. So um, our city government has announced 
that with the increased number of crow congregating in some areas of the city of Troy, that they are going to engage with the US Department of Agriculture to disperse some of these large concentrations of birds. Um, could you tell us sort of about those techniques and how one might coexist with the crows in a place as populated as a city like Troy? So it's, it's a great question. And uh, the city of Troy, magnificent. I had a chance to visit and uh, really enjoyed it last year. Ended up really focusing in on the crows uh, down near where Route 7 crosses over from east to west by the courtyard by Marriott, the Department of Social Services. They settled in for the night at the south end of Adams Island. I had been told to go up and take a look from the north end of Green Island, and I was able to track and see they were mostly coming in from the northwest and flying to the southeast, and that allowed me to, to loop around, come down 2nd Avenue. So in cities large and small across the country, this is a phenomenon in the northern U.S. Um, and southern Canada. And in some roost locations, like the one that I spend time studying, the crows conveniently choose to roost in wooded areas with no trails below, no parks below, no cars, and no sidewalks. But in other places, it's right downtown. It's below a car. On a windshield, when they poop, it's a mess. It could be on a sidewalk. It also, it has a horrible odor. So I spoke years ago with a woman, I think her name was Lori Ulrich in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And she has been involved for years as a proponent for proper dispersal techniques, because sometimes there can be choices made to do these dispersal activities in ways that, that, that some might feel are harmful or detrimental to the crows. Oftentimes, no matter what technique is used, the crows will either come back um, EP to the same location, kind of like, you know, all right, you, you you bothered us, but this is where we're hanging out. Or they make make minor geographic moves to different locations. Um, they're smart, they're clever, they do their own thing. You can spend a lot of money on both light show type techniques and, and loud cannon blasts. But at the end of the day, it's, um, it's like a, a petulant two-year-old they're going to do what they're going to do, and, and all of these things may not make that much of a difference. Now, some people in their frustration with the crows have complained about their activity impeding mobility. But from what you're saying, maybe the city's money is better spent giving car washes or cleaning sidewalks than sound cannons and lasers. But I'm curious what what do you suggest? Yeah, a couple of years ago, we did, for a couple of winters, we did kind of a crow celebration, and that helped raise awareness and appreciation. We had an exhibit in an art gallery. Uh, we worked with, with different school programs. Um, we worked with the local media. We worked with conservation groups. We had added walks, and it really raised that, that awareness so anything that's creative that might engage local community members in a positive way is, is time well spent. You do have that difficult challenge of a downtown area maybe having uh, crow poop on their sidewalk, uh, awnings, cars, there's a smell. Wrapped up in all of that is in many cities, 
the crows in the course of a winter season, so say roughly October until the end of March, when they begin to gather, they start the winter season. Then they may move around to five, six, or seven different overnight roosting locations in the course of a wintertime. If in Troy, there's this dispersal effort at the end of a four-week period where the crows might normally move on, and they might accelerate that by a day or two, but the crows are already going to go to another alternate location. And for dispersal purposes, depending on what's beneath the roost, um, you're going to have to start all over again. And, and it's, it's never-ending, you know, you really, you don't win. The USDA would be a proper agency with experience to know how to do these things, and the city is credited with making an effort. It, it may well be that it's going to be futile no matter what effort is expanded or extended. And for Friday night listeners who are against the displacement of crows, there'll be a As the Crow Flies, a celebratory procession on Saturday. That's tomorrow, December 17th at 3.30, and it begins at the top of the approach in Troy. That's on 8th Street between West Gall and MPAC. The Flagus Day Collective is leading this gathering and encourages wearing black and waving black flags. That sounds like such a great event. I'll be there. How about you, Sina? Okay, so our next and our fourth segment, well, many of us feel, well, may feel the Ukraine war fatigue and are paying less attention to the war in Ukraine. Anna Allen wanted to make sure that we're still paying attention. Early this year, on February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. This was a escalation of the Russo-Ukrainian war ongoing since 2014. Anna Allen, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you very much for having me back. You are originally from Ukraine, living in the capital region. You've previously been on this program. You told us about your family. And it's been a while since we've spoken. So how is your family doing? Um, all right, there managing. Um, unfortunately, since we last spoke, the situation changed, but really did not change that much. Um, back in the spring, summer, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, warmings in Kharkiv, the city where, where I'm from. And then the Ukrainian military was able to push Russians further out. So like, they don't get like your everyday shelling from the grad system, so artillery, but um, the problems that arise now in the past uh, approximately six weeks is uh, um, electric uh, system in the country being um, attacked by Russia. Um, there were several of these massive attacks, the latest one actually happened to today. Uh, when Russia sent 70 rockets, and although Ukraine was able to shut down uh, many of them, uh, there was still additional damage to the electric infrastructure, resulting in power outages. In, in general, now uh, every single power station in uh, Ukraine has 
been damaged with um, rockets uh, over the past six weeks and sustained damage. And uh, although in the summer Ukraine had plenty of electricity for its own needs and was even able to export some of electricity, right now they cannot produce electricity to meet its own needs and have about 30% deficit. And that is why they have if they can, they have planned blackouts in big parts of the country. And if they cannot, then they will have unplanned blackouts. Kharkiv, where my family is from, they, they had a you know big blackout today and uh, only ha- half of the city is back with power. Um, but in the sort of other parts of Ukraine, in Kiev, in Poltava region, um, that's what I know from sort of my family members, there's frequent blackouts, sometimes 12, 16 hours a day, they don't have power. And um, I think we're a little bit forget, but this day and age, so many things depend on electricity. When you lose electricity in a kind of, if it's a planned blackout, they usually do not disable cell towers, but if it is an attack, then the you know the cell cell phones go off and the cell phones cannot function, and then you become in this kind of uh, digital desert because you don't get any information whatsoever in a time when you really want to know what's happening and what is the cause of the blackout and what is going on in the rest of the country, the rest of the world. And heat is also an issue. It is winter. Cold it can be very dangerous to people. And uh, the heat in many places may depend on like gas or some other sources, but usually you have electricity to control the pumps or control the thermostats. And when there is no uh, electricity, usually heat is also a big problem. Um, and uh, in... Um, Ukraine, very often in the cities, uh, there would be this uh, heat stations that would produce uh, heat for several blocks of apartment buildings, um, you know, so thousands of people, and those also get targeted. And if they get destroyed, then people may end up without heat. So it it is really a big problem. Mm. It goes without saying that it's been a very difficult year for you and your family. Is there anything message that you have for listeners? My family and relatives in Ukraine, they very much appreciate U.S. aid. They do hope for more, uh, primarily military aid, because that is um, uh, really important in being able to resist Russian invasion. Uh, but also humanitarian aid. In the spring, there was a you know, big push and a lot of people donated and they got a lot of humanitarian aid. A lot of that had really dwindled and um, there, there is not much as far as like humanitarian aid coming to both hospitals and sort of uh, private individuals these days. And, and I guess, The other thing that I would like to bring up is why should Ukraine resist Russian occupation? Um, Not 
only trying to preserve your own country, your own uh, democracy, your own identity. But the other part, Ukrainians see what happens on the occupied territories. Like the occupation of Crimea that happened eight years ago was, uh, you can call it peaceful. There was you know, very few fatalities, but it's not like occupied territories by Russia. People thrived or anything like that. Since uh, Russia occupied Crimea, it basically um, transformed it into the military uh, base and has a lot of military, but the uh, commerce, um, everyday life of the people did not progress. It's like a stagnation, like no public uh, buildings, utilities, etc., have been built on these occupied territories. Um, in the territories that have been occupied now uh, and then been liberated, we have multiple, multiple examples of uh, people being uh, tortured by Russians, executed, of uh, thousands of people uh, being relocated into deep Russia, into Siberia, uh, children being forcefully relocated into Russia and, uh, uh, you know, forcefully adopted by Russian families. So um, Ukrainian resistance is not just trying to be independent, it's the way to survive because really if, if they get occupied, they um, really have a lot higher chances of you know, not being able to survive. Is there any possibility of ending the Russian occupation of Ukraine in a way that doesn't include more military support and more fatalities? I would disagree with you. I don't think military support means more fatalities. For example, the air defense systems, which Ukraine been able to get some over the past you know, 10 months, but definitely can use more, they do prevent a lot of fatalities because uh, yes, so those bombs will get discharged, but they usually will end up being discharged over some parts that is not populated versus being discharged over whatever civilian structures or schools or hospitals that Russia is trying to aim them for. So I, I would not, I would disagree that all military aid is, uh, you know, causes more fatalities. Um, I would definitely, everybody would like to see some peaceful resolution to this uh, problem. I, I don't think anybody sees it at this point. Um, and with the current Russian government, if in the spring, I was hoping that maybe like they try, they cannot win, they will back off. They don't seem to. They seem to continue this war if even it is um, causing so many lives on the part of the you know Russian invaders they're losing a lot of people by you know themselves uh, it's costing them a lot of money to to continue this war but they don't seem to back up to back off um, so I am not sure of what peaceful solution there could be unless, uh, you know, there will be changes in Russia itself, like changes in the Russian government and their doctrine. 
Anna, I always appreciate you giving us this update on um, a very personal situation to you. Thank you so much for, for talking to us. Thank you. And have a good, peaceful holidays. We have previous interviews with Anna Allen and Mark Dunley. He often talks about Ukraine and his peace buckets. And finally, our co-host, Jacob Boston, has been an intern with the Hudson Mohawk magazine for a year. And he's now off to college. As an important part of our volunteer production team, we wanted to make a moment or take a moment to reflect on the experiences he's had and we've had of working as a radio producer. Well, Jacob, you've well, you've been with us at Hudson Mohawk Magazine for a while, but what brought you to us initially? So in my senior year of high school, I signed up for an internship program. And honestly, funny story, this whole thing could have honestly never happened because the first two weeks I missed the program because I didn't know it was a ninth period of class. We have eight periods in school, right? So I didn't know. If you miss three straight weeks, you you get you the first three weeks they cut you out. So if I never it was it was the Thursday. So if I didn't get a notification from my friend that I was supposed to go to that class, I would have never gotten into the program and this probably whole would have thing would have never happened. So it was meant to be. I'm gonna jump on in here and it's been incredible to work with you. You've been somebody one of the few interns who have been in person in this virtual time during COVID. And you've been particularly yeah. engaged since you graduated from high school in June, coming in every Friday to co-host, except on a day like today when the roads are pretty bad. So what is it, what compels you can, to continue to engage in our programming? And can you maybe point to certain aspects of it that uh, make it worth your time to come to North Central Troy? Well, it's mainly the people you guys you teach me a lot of things that i will you know take into my you know college career and career after college just in life in general so there's that and this is just fun to do i come because i enjoy you know doing interviews with santa claus or you know talking to just people about anything so i come for those really two things mainly because it's fun and to learn a lot because you guys teach me a lot of good things what did you find that was really like maybe challenging or something that you thought was stretching you a little farther than you expected to go? Is there anything there? Being as good as Andrea Cunliffe. Oh. Um, <laughs> How diplomatic. You learned that one. <laughs> I'm still learning right now. I'm not uh, going to Yes, so. <laughs> yeah. So, so what did you like most? I mean, besides... <laughs> Working with Cena and I, what did you like most about it? Um, you know, was there something that really surprised you? Well, I got to go to a lot of places and talk to a lot of people that I wouldn't have talked to before and meet a lot of people that are good people that I just would have never met because I haven't, I wasn't going to be around. Even in my school when I was in high school, when I was recording interviews, I would talk to people or teachers I didn't really know like that or talk to that much. So, that was really the main part, uh, meeting new people that I probably wouldn't have met if it wasn't a different scenario. 
What you didn't introduce yourself with is that you were working on sports coverage and specifically interested in how sports shape communities. However, as of last week, your favorite interview, to my understanding, was the interview that has nothing to do with sports. So my question is, tell us about that interview. And was it your favorite or can you point to others that you also really enjoyed? So... Last, it was like, not last week, we did the interview, but it was a couple weeks ago. We, I got the, the pleasure and the honor to interview Santa Claus himself, right? So, <laughs> yes, that was my favorite interview, my favorite sport. It's on the same level. The first ever interview I did, or the second one I did with a coach and I did with a football player, it was my, I don't know if you guys remember, but it was Michael Brown as the student, and it was Coach Jack O'Keefe as the first interview those three are up there for me but Santa takes the edge because like he only comes once a year you know like you can only get you only get a certain amount of time to talk to him so that was probably my favorite one and stylistically they're very different one was like a 10 minute interview and then Santa was like on the scenes at a very chaotic energetic event Mm -hmm. so what's that experience different like for you well I would say preparation. I would say for like a 10-minute interview, you can or you will sort of, you know, get a lot of questions and things like that. And it's a teacher. I had the teacher. So even though I didn't have a connection like that to just interview him, even though I walked up to him, you know, it's Santa. So like (laughs) you don't really, you only saw like I said, you only see him once a year and it was just on the spot. I didn't have as much time to, you know, prep and things like that. So I don't know. It was just, I would say preparation mainly. I remember one of our interviews that we did together with a Shakespearean company up in, in Saratoga. And you were just wonderful asking such interesting questions. And I was really mm-hmm. grateful that you were there with us. Do you remember that one? Uh, we've done a lot. Um, <laughs> interviews they kind of all get lost you know but and Andrea, i remember an it. interview with andrea i definitely remember so i remember yeah, it, it and it you added time. context from a non-theater uh perspective yeah. which i think is sometimes we who are very into our thematic uh conversations sometimes forget to ask these very different questions so you guys have a really wonderful rapport I know we'll miss yeah, you, know. you. You know that, but you're you're gonna. Well, what are you gonna do? What's what's planned for you in the future? What have you got planned for the future? Well, college in about a month and two days exactly. Uh, you know how that goes. So just trying to figure that out, get established in there, and kind of get my footing there. I'll still be here, you know. I'm a, you, you know, promise? I, I, I can't leave Andrea hanging on Fridays like this. I just want to be right. So uh, I'll make sure I'll make an effort to be here. Um, but yeah, that's just it. Mainly just figuring out how I'm going to be in college and things like continuing my journey with you guys. <laughs> well, we would welcome you back anytime that you happen to be local. But I'm wondering if you, your college has got a, a radio station there. Do you know? Uh, not to my, I don't know, not to my knowledge. Um, I could probably search it up. I have no idea, but if they do, 
I'm going to tell them that you got to lock in because the sanctuary for independent media is up there. So we got to, you got to get on that level. Oh, you're wonderful. Well, good for you. Is there something more you'd like to tell us before you leave? And you're not really Thank leaving. For, you know, teaching me, the rookie, the, the two pros, the, the MVPs of this whole thing, you know, just teaching me stuff and not only teaching or making me get better at like interviews and just communication and journalism, but just talking to people in general, having conversations and creativity and thinking on your feet and things like that. So I appreciate you guys for helping me develop those skills and I will use those skills for just outside of anything, just in general. So thank you for that. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you. So we look forward mm-hmm. to having, hearing lots more about what you've been up to and, and uh, where you go. Keep us in your, keep us in your orbit. And for listeners right, who want to see, do that, do that. for listeners who want to see Jacob's uh, profile, People Power pages on the MediaSanctuary.org website. You can find Jacob Boston, and you can see some of those stories. And that's well, our show. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Cena. We'll be okay. That's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hots of Mohawk magazine. I'm Andrea Cunliffe, and gracious, wonderful Cena has been um, our engineer and co-host at times. So we thank all of our volunteers, definitely you, Jacob, and all the others who make today's episode possible. Headlines from Mark Dunley and segment producers. Elizabeth Press, Sina Basilihiki, and of course, Jason, or just uh, Jacob Boston. So uh, this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. So if you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. And we'd like to hear from you. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary or email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. So until next time, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>